I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Commons People, the Huffington Post politics podcast. I'm Ned Simons and I'm joined by Martha Gill, Aubrey Allegretti and Paul War. So it's been Brexit plus 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 this week. Um, Theresa May under renewed pressure again to set out what her plans are for the UK's exit from the EU. Here's Jamie Corbyn at Prime Minister's Questions piling that on. We have an, independent, an international development secretary who's opposed to internet overseas aid. We have a health secretary who is running down our national health service. We have a chancellor with no fiscal strategy. We have a Lord Chancellor who seems to have difficulty defending the judiciary. We have a Brexit team with no plan for Brexit. And as has just been shown, we have a Prime Minister who is not prepared to answer questions on what the actual Brexit strategy is. We need a better answer than she's given us. So he's got a point here, hasn't he, uh, the Labour leader? You know, we don't, again, still don't quite know what, what the government's uh, plan is. And we kind of learnt perhaps a bit of it from Boris Johnson giving an interview to a Czech magazine. I know. I love this idea that the PM says you can't have a running commentary. And of course, then that's exactly <laughs> what Boris does in various uh, European outlets. Um, he's done it to the Czechs, but also in retaliation to an Italian trade minister who's had a bit of a spat over <laughs> whether or not we'd take Prosecco more or less after Brexit. But the, the really interesting thing is that, of course, we Theresa May does not want to let us know the details of a negotiating strategy. Mm. So what we get is from number 10 and from, and from the PM and from David Davis, this constant line that, yeah, we've got a plan, we've got a plan. And the plan is that we know what our rough areas are, where we want to dominate. And isn't that a problem there? That seems like Which isn't a plan, that's uh, just a uh, statement of obje- objectives. Yeah, uh, having a hope for what you want the deal to be isn't the same as, yeah. as having a plan, is it? Absolutely. And, and I think they've kind of st- some Remainers have caught on to Angela Merkel kind of suggesting, or they think, that the kind of a softer Brexit is on the cards. Did she really say that? Well, and What did she say? What the did Daily she Telegraph really went hard this week, and they splashed on the fact that Merkel, you know, looks gives May some hope by s- suggesting that this big issue of freedom of movement, one of the central um, principles of the European Union, um, could possibly be uh, amended to taking out what Britain mm. wants. Now, thing is that she said very clearly, I'm not going to make any exceptions for Britain. She prefaced all the remarks by saying that. And then she said something interesting where she said, um, actually, when it comes to freedom of movement, her definition that's interesting is the point at which an individual starts working for his or her family. In other words, it's all about people in work. Mm. And she was basically trying to say, look, when it comes to benefits, that's a different ballgame. We can talk about that. But that's not what 
Brexit is about. That's not what the Leavers want. I mean, it's what David Cameron tried to get yeah. from her uh, and failed in to some extent, but some people say he got some success. So really what she was talking about was apples and pears. She wasn't really talking about freedom of movement. Um, it is going to change somehow. She was saying that actually when it comes to people getting benefits, she's trying to have a debate with the rest of Europe and they might come around to that. So sort of uh, Boris Johnson's suggestion that freedom of movement being a not a central tenant is bollocks was itself Someone pops perhaps bullets. Yeah, um, <laughs> I found that interesting though. Uh, the really key thing is what's going to happen to industry. A lot of people, you know, are saying what's going to happen to our trade after Brexit, and there are a lot of unanswered questions. That's why when we find out finally what uh, Greg Clark's deal is with Nissan, mm. and we'll we'll find out that in due course, I'm sure. Then it could be interesting because. Surely a multinational car maker wouldn't be duped into vague assurances. Surely they'd only go ahead with proper investment if they were given proper assurances. Now, I talked to someone in the car industry uh, over the last week, and they said, look, our margins, when you make a car, the margins are really tiny. It's like 2 or 3% mm. your profits. So if you're going to be slapped with a 10% tariff, you're going to move country very, very quickly. Right. And so their assumption is that that Greg Clark has given a guarantee that the government, even if Brexit means that Britain leaves the European single market, that somehow we'll compensate them for those tariffs. We will pay. So Britain will pay to keep them here. Now, you can't do that for every industry. Maybe you can do it for the car industry. We did have sort of a, a potential peak behind the curtain, didn't we, Martha? We had this leaked memo. It was the front page of the Times suggesting that essentially the government doesn't know what it's doing, is at war with itself, and needs to hire, I think this report said, was it 30,000 30, <laughs> <laughs> <So> civil <laughs> servants? Um, I don't know. The government has since completely distanced themselves from that report, saying it was kind of uh, unsolicited. And uh, the, the it, it, so it, it emerged that the, the report, which was initially reported as coming from inside the government, was actually uh, an internal email in Deloitte, uh, one of the companies the government is commissioned to work on, on Brexit with them, but 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 they say that that's completely wrong. But 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 it does give us an insight into something which um, people have been hinting at, which is that they need to hire a lot more people, yeah. <laughs> um, which is true. Um, uh, perhaps not thirty thousand, but s certainly um, a large number of civil servants, and and also that um, that the government isn't really prepared. I mean, what, what's happening at the moment is Brexit, the Brexit department is a sort of floating department which goes around to all the different departments and, and asks them, uh, you know, how <laughs> Brexit is going to work for them. <laughs> I bet they're <laughs> And apparently uh, what has emerged from that so far, according to this memo, is that every department has come up with like a worst case scenario and how they would cope with it. Right. But that doesn't tie into a sort of overarching solid plan uh, for Brexit, which what which is what people are getting at Theresa May for. And it is phenomenally complex, isn't it? I mean, it's no wonder. I mean, I remember talking to David Davis at the party conference. He was saying, you know, Basically, it is it's worse than 3D chess. That you know, just when you get one bit that you think you've sorted mm. out, another bit moves, and there's there's hundreds and hundreds of different things that need to be sorted out. They 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 obviously the Brexiteers say that's daunting, but they're quite uh, like the challenge. You know, that, that ultimately it will be worth it. It'll be a lot of pain, a lot of hard work, but they say it's worth it. The, but the point is, there's a lot of energy being. And I think the interesting point you say is a lot of pain and kind of their ideas, you know, the, the end goal is worth all the trouble it goes through. But I mean, some of the trouble is quite personal as well, isn't it? I mean, Bree, you were at a select committee where they were hearing from the chairman of Hope Not Hate about some of the hate crimes that happened, or they say as a result of the, the campaign. I mean, what, what were they saying there? It, it kind of showed perhaps the, 
the impact of the campaign and yeah there's certainly a lot of um fear about like the human impact of both the campaign and what happened in the wake of it there was this sort of quite significant spike in hate crime that happened um just before and then immediately after brexit it was up like 40 percent year on year um and so nick lowell's who's the chair of hope not hate or chief executive rather um was saying that while uh, there was a a sort of deliberate strategy employed by the Leave campaign to highlight some certain emotional issues. It didn't deliberately cause all of the attacks that happened after, but it definitely affected them. You know, it wasn't the the intention or the motive of Farage and Banks, the two people that he named in the in the hearing, but they were certainly responsible for it. Um, and it comes after, like, the UN warned against this same thing and blamed xenophobic rhetoric from certain politicians in the Leave campaign. Um, I was at the all-party parliamentary group on racism last night uh, where David Davis was, David Davies rather, was talking. The other one, yeah. <laughs> not that one, not the Brexit <laughs> secretary. So, um, and yeah, he was saying how, you know, Leave campaigners had to be given a chance to be able to openly sort of talk about their fears of immigration without being branded racists. And he wouldn't you know, accept that anybody in his, he wouldn't accept anybody saying anything insightful or racist. And he was just as keen as many of the mm. Remainers to, to stem this. So I think there's quite a bit of concern from the Leave side that they need to do more um, to kind of address some of the people in their ranks who perhaps are yeah. a little bit more responsible for this than others. I wonder what that march will be like on the Supreme Court that we've got in there. <laughs> when is it? So is it a couple of weeks' time? Or yeah. Well, the hope is it will turn out to be a bit like the sort of Tim Loughton, uh, Andrew <laughs> Lesson march, you know, slightly <laughs> wacky, very, very eccentric, very British, and not not too nasty. Yeah, I, th I think that's the hope, and let's see. I mean, some mm. of the the nastier elements, which uh, are on the fringes, and, and certainly has been expressed in that spike of hate crime. Mm. That I think all sides, in the mainstream debate, will be hoping that. But they're going well after the, the Supreme Court, aren't they? I mean, the Brexiteers are not happy with. The I Supreme personally Court think that the cops won't allow them to get really close right. to the Supreme. I think there'll be a serious public order issue there. Mm. So I suspect they'll, if I were them, if I were the, the Farage and co, I would have my march, but I'd have it away. I'd have it somewhere in Hyde Park or somewhere, and then, you know, march, like march being, on the court. Being blocked from it. There were plenty of like groups who've got quite a big history of needing sort of public order notices and bannings and things like that, like yeah. the EDL and Britain First and the BNP, who are all yeah. planning on joining. So, you know, I think, I think the police will have to do quite a lot That's a very good point. I mean, th th those red flags will flash up straight yeah. away for the police and see whether or not they crack down. I mean, talking of Farage, he's sort of been, he's on a great time, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the these, these, grinning. these connecting issues of, kind of Donald Trump's victory and the, the Brexit result, which he is keen to link together. He's been kind of straddling the globe like a like a kind a of colossus. A, a colossus. Yeah, absolutely. Golden um, colossus. Kind of, kind of, I don't know, kind of pitching himself as either the, what is it, Martha, the, the British ambassador to the US or Trump's ambassador here. Trump's ambitious yeah. ambassador to the EU, I think this is initial pitch. What, what's he up to? What does he actually want, do you think? Is it just to be on telly a bit? I think he does, doesn't he? I mean, he loves the attention, obviously, but he's, he's, he's seen what it can do for you. In Trump had exactly this role, of course, you know, mm. a commentator rather than a politician, and it, it, it worked for Trump. So you can see that maybe for Farage, who does want does to step off the treadmill of running elections and all that hard stuff, as he said himself, that's why he doesn't want to continue be le being mm. leader of UKIP. He likes the fact that he can be a sort of free freelance commentator with influence. And the curious thing is that Many of the things he's saying and has been talking about are, are the sort of thing that Corbynistas and the left 
as much mm. as they dislike him, have been agreeing about. And that's things like, you know, looking again at free trade, this whole consensus. And you've got to say that the most depressed people around right now, in my opinion, are the sort of former Blairite, moderate Labour types. Because if you're a Tory and you're a Remainer, you won a general election in 2015. That's fine. If, if you're, you know, a, a Lever, you're in heaven and you're a Tory because of obviously Brexit. If you're a Corbynista, you're really, really quite pleased because you've won not one but two leadership elections and your stamp is now firmly on the Labour Party. So the people who are really feeling pain post-Trump in this past week are the Blairites. And, you are know, they more, the, more depressed than the Lib Dems? Or, uh, I, think, <laughs> I, I think they possibly are. I mean, you've got people who are actually beginning, like Ed Balls, I talked to him last night about... He's got new ideas about things like, you know, some of the new Labour shibboleths like Independence of the Bank of England, you know, have got to change to catch up with public mood. So he's talking about things like that. And again, on infrastructure, you know, there's a lot of things there that maybe the centrists in Labour can agree with. That Trump's doing a massive mm. injection in infrastructure spending. That's one area where they may agree with the Corbyn uh, left of the Labour Party. But I've got to say, I talked to one sort of Blairite earlier in the week, and, you know, their pain is palpable. Well, actually, John McDonnell, he gave a speech on, notionally on the economy earlier this week that I went to, where his rhetoric on and speech about Brexit was quite interesting. He was basically saying we need to be positive about Brexit. It, it wasn't this sort of perhaps more pro-European, you know, Blairite, oh, it's all a shame, it's a disaster. Certainly not. It was, okay, it happened. Maybe I'm secretly a bit happy about it. A chance to reshape the economic order in a, in a, a more kind of left-wing way. Yeah. And, you know, as he was saying, you know, we're not going to block Article 50, we're not going to delay Article 50. We'll apply moral pressure, gonna, yeah, didn't he say? He's going to apply moral pressure to the government to, to get a good deal. I don't <laughs> quite know how that works. I think you just kind of look across the dispatch box with, I don't know, poppycock eyes or something and try and try and get a good deal. I'm not quite sure. Well, the fact is that, the, you know, the raw facts are the, are the electoral facts. You know, Corbyn and Co. won a big majority. Brexit won a majority. Trump's won a majority. You've got to deal with the math as it is. Mm. And I think you know that's what McDonald's trying to do. He's saying, you know, roll with it, get on with it. And uh, there's a mood certainly amongst the Labour Party that, as much as they, there is a rearguard action, whether it's Article 50 in the courts or whatever, to try and get a soft Brexit, they've got to just accept the fact that we're leaving. Hmm. I think uh, th they're just trying to find their place, aren't they? That uh, I mean, it, it sort of. A lot of people are saying that the split is no longer in politics between left and right. It's between pro-globalisation and mm. anti-globalisation. And they are the pro-globalisation. -glo they don't seem to have much public Yeah, support, they're they? not doing a good case at defending no. it, put it that well, way. Speaking so of anti-globalisation, we're talking about Trump. First of all, I want to play Nigel Farage. This is a clip of him uh, just when he landed back in Britain being quite happy and, like I said, making his pitch for, for some kind of job as a negotiator. Can you imagine if we were a business and we were looking at Trump and America as somebody that we thought it was very important to form a close relationship with, what, what would you do? You'd find somebody that had connections. I do have connections with Trump, more particularly with Trump's team, many of whom I've known for years, and yet the government don't want in any way to talk to me informally or do anything. And it says a lot, actually, about the way we're governed in this country. We are run by people who've never worked in the real world. I mean, the suggestion is Liam Fox would like to talk to you and like to use you. Have you had any overtures? Well, you have to ask him about that. But, uh, you know, all I can say is that it is to anybody out there that's ever worked in the real world will be astonished by Number 10's reaction. But, I mean, the question for many is whether we can do business with uh, Donald Trump, given his views, for example, on things like climate change. Well, do you know what? There's, there's no point in us rerunning the presidential election and the good things or bad things that were said and done. 20th of January, 
he becomes the president of the USA, and we've got to try and forge a relationship. And I see an opportunity, and I'll tell you why. He is instinctively an Anglophile. You know, he loves this country. His mother was from Scotland. Uh, he's got investments in Scotland. He feels strongly about our shared history. We've got a fantastic opportunity here. Let's grab it with both hands. So that was Farage there, having an excellent time. And obviously, last time we had this podcast, Trump had just won. Something we obviously totally expected to happen and completely predicted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in no way got wrong at all. Um, it's kind of interesting now that what's going on the stage. You've got him putting together his team, but in this really kind of really unusual way. I mean, I'm going to read a tweet out <laughs> to you that he sent because he's back on Twitter. And his tweet said, very organized process taking place as decide on cabinet and many other positions. I'm the only one who knows who the finalists are, exclamation mark. It's, it's The Apprentice. He's doing cabinet appointments, yeah. just like his TV show. He's holed up in Trump Tower, isn't he? Apparently, foreign leaders are getting through to him by throwing the switchboard and then... Or phoning a favourite golfer. Yeah. It's completely, completely bizarre. But it's interesting because we're now getting a bit more of the fun back of the sort of campaign, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, uh, some people needed it. You know, I mean, there's a, let's be honest, we need the light relief. And it's, it's, it's an element of where, yeah, Trump's back on Twitter, you know, he's, he's really himself. But there are, there, there's definitely this dichotomy between Trump as president and Trump as candidate. And sometimes he just loves going back to being the candidate, and Twitter is the outlet for that. But when he comes to president, boy, did he look terrified after he talked to President Obama for 90 minutes. And that's why this week in the House of Lords, what uh, the Foreign Office Minister Baroness Annerley said was really significant. Neil Kinnock said to her, look, sh should it be the case as a lot of people around Trump do, that we treat what he says seriously, but not literally. But and oh. the minister of, British, of the British government said, yes, that's how we should approach it. Do you think perhaps we're kidding ourselves, though? Perhaps it's wishful thinking, this hope that he's not going to be the Trump that campaigned, that said, though, you know, made you know, sexist comments, racist comments, all that stuff. And we're kind of crossing our fingers, hoping that no, once he gets into the White House, he'll be, su you know, surprised on this reasonable, perhaps even liberal, as Boris Johnson claims the other day. I mean, are we just basically crossing our fingers? It seems to me that if he said this stuff so much, should we not just believe him? I mean, there are sort of signs that he's not going to suddenly soften his stance mm. on everything, as was hoped. Um, I mean, uh, earlier on this week, uh, in fact, over the weekend, um, he sort of doubled down on his position uh, on Syria, um, for example, which is something that everyone was was hoping, because that's that's one yeah. of the most <laughs> extreme uh, positions that he took. Um, and, he, and he doubled down on it, saying he would withdraw all his support from the rebels. Um, so, uh, so, so that was that was a shock to people, and perhaps an indicator yeah. of things to come. I think it's interesting you used the phrase "double down." I went to um, Oxford Union last night, where Corey Lewandowski, who was Trump's first campaign manager, and he was making a point during the campaign. Every time Trump did anything controversial, he always said, "We're going to double down on it," using that phrase. Mm. Barrel into it. Don't back off. If you if you back off, people think you don't have. Your conviction. So mm. just do it again. Everything he did, attacking Clinton, attacking John McCain, on the Khan family, just do it more and more. And I think that's where perhaps Trump's comfortable. So I think we could see this situation where he kind of continues his campaign, as it were, even when he's president. Mm. I mean, there was a report recently that he almost wants to start a momentum-style group himself yeah. in the States yeah. so he can carry on the movement around the country, perhaps still giving rallies, even though he's in the White House, because that's where he feels safe and mm. comfortable. But and on things like the Muslim ban, I mean, it's obvious that's not going to happen. I mean, it's just not going to happen. 
you know, it, re- it really won't. And you can you can fire me, okay, yeah. if that <laughs> happens. But the, uh, have that a, a blanket <laughs> ban on Muslims entering the US is not going <laughs> to happen. And that's why people like Corey Le- Lewandowski are actually now saying, actually, no, he never said it. Of course, he did say it. No, yeah. he never said it. What he really meant was jihadists, we want to do some checks on them applying for citizenship. Mm. It's not about immigration. And again, Brown Asainer this week said, actually, when it comes to things like um, immigration, the British government has a very firm, firm stance. Even Theresa May and PMQs, in a cack-handed way, mm. said, look, you cannot do this Muslim ban stuff. And the same goes on the on the Mexican wall. Obviously, we might it's now downgraded to a fence. All right, there might be a bit that's a wall, but mm. I suspect you won't get... He won't satisfy all those people who expected this massive, great, big, beautiful wall. That's not going to be happening. It's but in uh, terms of in terms of our relation to Trump, um, where do you think that's going to go? It's quite difficult to, to to work it out at the moment because, first of all, Trump left it um, left us tenth in the queue in world yeah. leaders to to, g- to give Theresa yeah. May a call. Uh, but then during the call, it emerged that he was sort of incredibly enthusiastic about the relationship, saying, "You know, you're you're Maggie to my uh, Reagan." Uh, and then, and then, and, uh, but then various lines have emerged from his from his uh, from his chat with May, uh, which is just incredibly unpresidential. Like, oh, "If you're ever in the U.S., come and see me, <laughs> Theresa May." <laughs> um, which is, so, it's, so it's kind of it's really difficult to sort of work out um, what our relationship is. Mm. I think it will be an element of the of, of the, the campaigner well, Trump. You know, it'll be a bit of fun. That stuff like, you know, come and see me sometime. Speaking of the uh, the relationship, <laughs> we've got a quiz. Go, go. Yeah. Uh, to end on. Excellent. Um, I hope it's easier than last week's. It's no, it's not. Um, <laughs> it's about ambassadors. It's called Diplomat or Diplonot. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to name some people. Some of these people have been or are ambassadors. Some of them aren't at all. They're not real ones. Go, go for so, it. So, uh, okay, the first one, guys. Cecil Spring Rice. Is that a, a diplomat? Is he an ambassador or diplomat? Definitely got to be a diplomat. A current ambassador name. for which country do we know? Uh, current or historical. Mm. Oh, right. Um, well, it's kind of a ridiculous name, so I, I think that probably it's one that you've picked out and it is real. I'd say that's not real. Diplomat. Oh, I'm saying that, de- yeah, definitely diplomat. Yep, that he was a uh, US ambassador to the States in 1913 to oh. 1918. Very good. Okay, next one, Robert Thorne. No idea. I mean, I don't know, but I'm going to go not because it sounds like a sensible name and therefore <laughs> one that you would make up. Yeah? Yeah. Paul? Yeah, it's too, too no, boring. It's, it's um, the ambassador from the Omen, so <laughs> not, not a real one. Um, okay, how about um, Robert Todd Lincoln? No, you've you've no. put the word Lincoln in there. To Todd trick Lincoln. Us. Mm. Trick but then, th- yeah, but then no, I'm gonna go yes, diplomat. Yeah. Diplomat. Uh, it was uh, Abraham Lincoln's son was ambassador to Britain in nice. 1889. Okay. Um, 1889. Yep. Uh, Curzon Dax. No idea. It sounds like an anagram. I mean, Curzon sounds like the kind of cinema that you'd. Liked like going to, <laughs> and I feel like that's probably a name that you've made up. Yeah, I'm going with Diplomat as well. Yeah, that's from Star Trek. Um, <laughs> and yeah. okay, last one um, Frank Kellogg. Ooh. Uh, diplomat. Let's say, yeah. Yeah, Diplomat. Yeah. Maybe a bit of brains yeah. too. Uh, I got all of them right. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Dependent on no first. knowledge. Makes <laughs> up from last week. <laughs> 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 anyway, on that note, uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.